Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. This is the first time you're joining us in this series. We started at the beginning of October into a church-wide campaign uh, uh, all together with small groups, home groups, and Sunday morning sermons in a series called Church and Culture. Initially, we're going to call it Church versus Culture, but it sounded too antagonistic, and that's not what we're going for. So Church and Culture. And the question throughout this whole series has been, is the church influencing the culture, or is culture influencing the church? And so we've been dissecting Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles today, we will be getting to that in just a moment. Those of you at home as well, please turn there if you get a chance to. Um, and if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to the More section at the bottom of your screen and look up events, and you'll find our church notes there under our church. And you can actually fill in uh, the church notes that you would normally be handed out at the door. Those of you at home as well could do that. We've been looking at topics the very first week. Uh, we looked at the topic of the apostles' teachings versus the world's teachings. Last week, Matt uh, McCarrier took us through signs, wonders, and weirdos. We looked at the Holy Spirit, and does the Holy Spirit still work today the way the Holy Spirit worked in the first century church? Today, we're looking at a very heavy topic called communism, socialism, capitalism in the church. And I won't say that I've been looking forward to teaching on this because I know it's an extremely taboo topic depending on what side of any of these issues that you stand, sit, or whatever. So... Let me just kind of plow through and get into this. We're going to be looking at verses 44 and 45 in Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to look at the church as juxtaposed against the cultural norms of our day. Oz Guinness, one of my favorite authors, you hear me quote favorite authors, Oz Guinness is one of those that ranks at the top. He has a book called Renaissance. It's a short book, uh, but it's a very good book. And in that book, he writes... The Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, who leads, embarrasses many of us in our traditions today. On the one hand, the Holy Spirit is neglected, if not forgotten, the member of the Holy Trinity for many in the Western church today. For some, the cause is the bureaucratic institutionalizing of the medieval church and the emphasis on the saints and the mediators rather than on God himself. For others, the reason goes back to post-Reformation, which is post-1500s AD, the great Reformation under Martin Luther, 1517. So if you go, uh, if you go after that, it's this post-Reformation dryness, he says, and st uh, that stress the word of God at the expense of the spirit of God. For still others, he goes on to write, the root lies in a general inclination to see the world with the lenses of the enlightenment, naturalism, which was in the 17, 1800s, 
and so to suffer from its tone deafness and reality blindness to the spiritual realm, right? The scientific method. If it cannot be tested in a lab, then it's not real. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes on to say, the last sentence of this quote, yet for others, the spirit of God is neglected because of the weird, the wild, and the wonderful things done in his name. Situations and things that happen in life that seem miraculous but bog the mind down with just this uncertainty of questioning, how could this happen? How can that thing actually happen when it doesn't fit the context of the way that I think it should? The Holy Spirit baffles us at times, if we even give him thought at all. So caught up in this cultural milieu of competing worldviews, the church and the American culture is blasted and in many ways infiltrated by philosophical and political thought and reasoning that borders on the heretical. Am I losing you? Okay, I'm just making sure you're hanging in there with me. Because I realize a lot of this, when I taught this with our leaders a few weeks back, we went through this in uh, September, every Wednesday night, I was teaching the leaders the subject. This is the one when we got finished with it, they dreaded teaching the most, right? Because not only is it taboo, it is a civics lesson of sorts. Because we're going to look at each of these different political, uh, socio-political structures and which one actually fits the church, or does any of them fit the church? But we have been infiltrated by a, a, a political thought, by a philosophical thought that has oftentimes infiltrated the church instead of the church actually infiltrating the world with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. We've allowed the world to infiltrate the church with the thought processes and structures and scientific methods and all of that stuff. And I'm not casting that aside as nonsense, but we've allowed that to be the dominant teaching within the church rather than the other way around. So the question is, how do we get back to the church being the church and influencing the culture rather than the other way around. You see, the early church specifically as witnessed in Paul's letters, most of our New Testament, if you will, was constantly battling the teachings of the world around them. You cannot pick up one of Paul's letters from Corinthians to Ephesians to Philippians to Galatians, any of them, without him having some kind of squaring at these, these uh, false teachings that had begun to infiltrate the church. What false teachings were infiltrating the church? Well, there were several, but the dominant one of the day was called Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S-M. You just look it up. G-N-O-S, all right? It's Gnosticism. Not great speller here. And so, what is Gnosticism? Well, Gnosticism actually found its roots in a philosophical mindset in, in, in the Greek culture uh, through Plato and Aristotle. But Plato was the one who really came up with this dominant thought. So, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is the mindset that what is spiritual is perfect and good, but what is physical is evil and bad. Okay? So, well, what did that have to do with the church? How did that teaching enter the church? Well, there was a debate going on in the early church that Jesus Christ was not really God in the flesh because flesh is physical matter, substance, not just spiritual. 
If God had actually come from heaven to earth to take on the form of a man, then he would be less than God because to take on physical matter would be imperfection. And so God could never do that. And so this teaching, this platonic view of Gnosticism began to infiltrate the early church at the time. And unless we think that that mindset is so far gone and so ancient, 2,000 plus years old, and it doesn't really affect the church today, we are mistaken. Because there are people today that say Jesus was just a good man, a good teacher, maybe a great prophet of sorts, but he wasn't really God. He didn't really rise from the dead. He didn't do X, Y, and Z. And a lot of people say he didn't even claim to be God or the Messiah or the Son of God. And I would beg to differ. If you know the Gospels well enough where we have in red the words of Christ written down, there were so many times he, wrote, he spoke to the crowd saying, I am. In Greek, we call that ego eimi, and you've heard me talk about this in the past, but there are several instances where he says, I am, in reference to the same language that was spoken in Exodus 3, where God meets Moses in a burning bush, and the bush is not consumed by the flames, and Moses says, as God is trying to get him to go back and help set the captives free in Egypt, Moses says, who shall I say is sending me? And what does God tell him? He says, I am that I am. This word is what we call the tetragrammaton. It's called Yahweh. It is the official Jewish name for God that God himself gave Moses and that the people of God in Israel knew as the God of heaven and earth. And so now Jesus in the New Testament, in John chapter 8, check it out. He's sitting there having debate, debates with religious leaders and, and, and people of Jerusalem, and, or the people of, of, of the Hebrew peoples. And he says to them, in this debate between Abraham being their father, Father Abraham, right? And Abraham being their father, Jesus says, well, before Abraham was, I am. That's not great grammar, is it? I remember growing up in grade school, learning proper English and, and, and tenses and those kind of things. And if I were to come to my teacher and said, before uh, my mom was, I am, she would, you know, of course, I would paddle you back in my day, but I wouldn't have gotten paddled for that. But it would be nonsensical, right, to say that. It doesn't sound right. What is Jesus saying in John chapter 8? Before Abraham was, I am. And many of your English translations will have I am in all caps. And anywhere you see the Lord written in all caps, or God in all caps, or I am in all caps, it's referring to that tetragrammaton, that Yahweh name, the one that God gave of himself. Okay, I digress. But Paul was dealing with this problem of Gnosticism, this problem of false teaching infiltrating the church. Now, a little bit of a history lesson 2,000 years ago that was happening in the church. Does it happen in the church today? That's not rhetorical. Does it happen in the church today? Yes. Of course it does. It definitely does. What are some of the things we debate? And I'm not just talking about doctrinal issues that we debate. Well, should you speak in tongues? Should you not speak in tongues? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about some really hard line issues. And I've gotten in trouble by talking about the homosexuality issue. But it has infiltrated the church. Is it right or is it wrong? 
Uh, what about abortion? Is it right or is it wrong? We've lost people because of our stance on abortion. The question is, who's influencing who? What does Scripture state, and is Scripture truth? If Scripture is not truth, then we might as well disband, close the doors, and go home, because what am I preaching or teaching? I'm not going to get up here and tell you a bunch of fluff. I could, I could speak for hours, and you've heard me. And if, you, if I'm just giving you Brandon's truth, you could take it or leave it. But if I give you the word of God, you could take it to the bank. But I'm also tell, and I also tell you all the time, don't take my word for it. Do not take my word for it. Read it yourself. Dig into it. Chew on the meat of the word. Because if all you do is come and listen to me speak, you're missing out. You're going to be standing before God someday as the great judge of heaven and earth, and he's going to say, how'd you do? Well, Brandon taught me about X, Y, no, 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 no. I didn't ask you about Brandon. I asked you about you. The question is, are you digging in? Are you living a life in Christ because it's your desire, not because you're just going through the motions or not because somebody told you you should do it? Some of the things I tell my own kids is, listen, you won't get to heaven based on your mom and dad's faith. You, you, you won't, you can't be a believer in Christ just because your mom and dad are. You've got to own what you believe. And if you only own what you believe because your mom and dad believe it, then you'll be shaken and rattled to the core and you may even walk away from the faith. The real issue is you've got to own this. And church, the problem in our culture is our churches have forgotten to own their belief and their faith in God. And the source of truth, which is rooted in the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, we can study the Word of God to the neglect of the Spirit of God who animates the Word of God and still only come out as intellectual snobs, having that knowledge that puffs up. But we have been called to be Spirit-filled believers in God Carrying the word of God, the good news of God, the apostles teaching into the world to set the captives free just like Moses did. Who shall I say is sending me? I am is sending me. And he's still the same today as he was yesterday and he will be forever. So what about these structures within society and which one best fits the church Communism, socialism, or capitalism. Let's look at the definitions of each of these this morning. These are the dominant socio-political structures globally right now. There are others out there, but dominant political structures right here. The first one I have is communism. I don't have it on the board here, uh, but it's this. If you look at Collins', Collins English Dictionary, it says that communism is the advocacy of a classless society in which private ownership of all things has been abolished and the means of production and subsistence belong to the community. What does that mean? It means nobody owns anything, everybody collectively owns everything, and everybody shares what everybody has. 
I don't have any of the house that I live in. It's not my own. It's everybody's. And you could come in and go as you please into my house, out of my house. If you want to come in and get stuff out of my fridge, we usually have an open fridge policy if it's not bad. You know, oh, this is uh, milk that's been there for 12 years. So, uh, I mean, but you're welcome to it, right? No, I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. But here's the thing. That's kind of what we're talking about. There are no higher-ups, there's no hierarchy within society, everybody is on equal playing field, uh, to each according to his need, from each according to his ability, which is a Marxism, Karl Marx who invented communism, uh, and his communist manifesto, I have read it, it's some creepy stuff, I'm just saying, check it out if you want to, but it's, it's pretty whacked out. But honestly, there has never been a communist structure in society ever. There are governments that claim to be communists, but they are not solely communists. They are in a socialist structure that are on the, trying to fulfill a communist uh, ideal, but nobody has ever gotten there. It's all fallen apart before it's gotten to communism because you still have a concentrated power and a sole few over the others, which leads me to this question. What is the next one? Socialism. Socialism, according to Collins' English Dictionary, is an economic theory or system in which the means of production and distribution and exchange are owned by the community collectively, usually through the state. It is characterized by production for use rather than for profit, by equality of individual wealth, by the absence of competitive economic activity, and usually by government determination of investment prices and production levels. This is where all concentrated power is in the state, democratically elected by the people. Okay? So the people elect leaders of the state who then in turn decide how things are distributed how things are exchanged, and what is produced. Nothing is produced for profit, which means you rarely have pleasurable things within society unless everybody can have those pleasurable things, but the pleasurable things that are produced are usually subpar. Think of the Yugo. Remember Yugo from Yugoslavia? Some of you who are older might remember. Look it up online, the Yugo. It was a socialist product. It was a small little car that barely made it off the assembly line and died about a mile down the road. All right? These kind of things, there is lack of incentive in a socialist structure for people to compete, to do better, to grow more. What about capitalism then? Maybe capitalism, is that the structure of the early church? Let's look. Capitalism, again, according to the dictionary, says it's an economic system based on private ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange characterized by the freedom of capitalists to operate or manage their property for profit in competitive conditions. This is you're free to do what you want to do. I'm free to do what I want to do. I can go whatever field I want to go into, and I can strive and work as hard as I want to to go up whatever ladder that is and whatever industry I work in to earn as much as I want to so that I can be competitive uh, in, in the workforce. And that what I earn is mine. What you earn is yours. I don't have a right to what you earn. You don't have a right to what I earn. That is a capitalist structure built on the freedoms within society for each to, to do their own thing by the freedoms afforded them by the society in which they live. 
Again, these aren't the only sociopolitical thoughts within, structure, within the structure of our global system, but they are the dominant ones. So what is the question? I'm going to look at verses 44 and 45, and you tell me which one you think fits. This is not a gotcha. This is not a, I'm going to snag you in and, 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 and you know, throw you for a loop. Let's look and see what the scripture says. Acts 2, 42, let's read the whole thing. 42 through 47, we're going to focus on verses 44 and 45. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to the number those who were being saved. Now, if we look at that at face value, what do we notice? They shared everything they had. And actually, if you read some of the extra biblical outside of the Bible sources, it says from some of the Roman historians like Tacitus that these people take care of their own. They are actually so well off that there's not even a need among them. There's no poor among them because they take care of their own. And they also take care of ours. Isn't that crazy? So socialist? I mean, it was Roman culture at the time. Communist, capitalist. You see, one of the things devoid of any of those three structures that I just mentioned is enforcement by law. Did you notice that? What did the early church do out of the goodwill of their own hearts? They didn't have to be forced to do it by a governmental structure. God wasn't even forcing them to do it. They weren't doing it at gunpoint. What were they doing? If any of them had need, then they, others that did have things would sell them off and give the money to those in need. What's the problem with the structure? There's no problem with it. The issue is, a lot of times we read into Scripture things that aren't there. Because these verses have been used to prop up a socio-political structure and utilized for social justice within society and have actually done more damage than good. Believe it or not. What is the church to be about? What is the church's main purpose and goal in life? Well, in order to know that, we've got to look and see what is the definition of the church. Well, the church, known in the New Testament, is called the ecclesia. And the ecclesia really just means assembly. And an ecclesia or assembly of persons known as the body of Christ, with Christ as the head, originator, and sustainer through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is. The church is the body of Christ with Christ at the head. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We read about this all throughout Scripture. Colossians, we read that Christ is the head of the church, that through him all things came, came into existence. All things exist because of him, for him, and all things hold together through him. Yes? Have I lost you? I really feel like there's a disconnect. Okay, I know it's a lot of stuff to really chew through and stuff, but... 
Honestly, you got an election in a few weeks, and I'm not trying to steer you one way or the other, but one of the things I realize about the electorate and our society is that we're super uneducated about what really the church is to be. The separation of church and state has so infiltrated that we think we shouldn't have any say in anything, but truly the church should be standing for what the church is good at standing for, and that's the truth. So what is the truth? God's word is the truth, but some people will debate us on that. I believe God's word is the truth because I've tested it, and I've learned it, and I've studied it, and I've seen it to be true time and time again. But not only me, you read other scholars throughout 2,000 years of world history that have tried to refute it, some of the most staunch atheists, and they've come to err on the side, oh my goodness, this is truth. C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, several others throughout the course of human history. Everything in the world that does exist or came into existence came into existence through Christ. He is the head. So, who is the head of the church? Christ. Who makes decisions for the church? Christ, yes, very good. So if he's the head, we should be looking to him for the answers, right? Jesus, what do you want us to do next? Holy Spirit, where do we go from here? The United States has a constitution. Yes? A bill of rights that goes along with our constitution that determine the governance of our society. We are a representative republic built on certain ideals and we are a government built on laws now those laws are rooted in judeo-christian principles if you actually look at our constitution it is heavily saturated with scripture the old and new testament but is it a perfect structure no man-made structures are not Does that mean I'm diminishing the worth of our Constitution or our Bill of Rights? No, not at all. I think it's amazing. It's probably the best governing document the world has ever known outside of Scripture. But when we get to the definition of the church, who is the head of the church? Christ. Who governs the church? Christ. How does Christ govern the church? Love. What does love look like when it's manifested in the body of Christ? It looks a lot like mercy and grace, but it also looks a lot like truth. Grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth, John tells us in his gospel. But see, in our society, we tend to err on the side of more grace and less truth, or more truth and less grace, and those churches that are more truth and less grace are legalistic, and they're the finger-wagging type, and those that are more grace and less truth are the ones that say, anything goes, you do whatever you want to, God will work it out in the end. But Jesus is full of grace and truth and equal supply. So he can stand and talk to the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8 and say, you without sin cast the first stone, to those who were holding stones to kill her. And then he could look her in the eye and say, where are your accusers when all of them then left? And she says, no one's here to accuse me. And he says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. 
That's what grace and truth looks like. That's what love looks like. That's what the governing principles of love look like. They don't look like, yeah, do whatever you, go back and do whatever you want, you're fine. And it doesn't look like you're going straight to hell because you committed this sin. You know what it looks like? It looks a lot like Jesus. And the problem within the church is we've decided to take our standards from the world rather than from Jesus, and so we look a lot like the world. What does our governance structure for the church looks like? look like? Well, what's your denomination or your movement? What is that? Well, we have an Episcopal structure. Well, we have an elder-led structure. We have, a, we have a congregational structure. Why don't we have a Jesus structure? Doesn't that stand to reason that that's kind of how that should work? No, 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 no. We got to look more like the world. First Samuel chapter 8. We're living during the time of the judges. We are not. They were, the Israelites. There was no king that ruled the land. Samuel was the great last judge of Israel. And the people came to him and they said, listen, we don't want judges anymore. We want a king like all the other nations around us have. Come on, give us a king. Go to God and tell him we want a king. And Samuel's like, no, you don't need a king. You already have a king. So Samuel relents. He goes and spends time with God. And God says, go ahead, give them what they want. But I want you to give them a warning ahead of time. Let them know that they can have a king, an earthly king. But let them know that that king will put their children into slavery. Let them know that king will take the first fruits of their crops, of their flocks, they will force them into labor. Let them know all of that, but tell them they can have a king. And keep this in mind, Samuel, God tells Samuel, don't think for a minute they're rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Because Samuel was the judge at the time over Israel. So Samuel goes back. And we know the first king comes onto the scene by the name of Saul. Handsome, tall, dark. He's an awesome leader until he's not. But isn't that the case with all human beings? We are awesome until we're not. You know so-and-so, they are, you know Bill Hybels, he is awesome until he's not. Or do you know, um, give me some more leaders. Really? It's like a pin drop. You can't think of a leader that's failed? Every one of them, James McDonald, huh? Yeah, he was pretty right. And he even went to seminary. He was studying for the ministry. And then under his leadership, millions were dead. Woohoo! Great leader, right? Until he wasn't. So, instead of mimicking the structures of society, wouldn't it stand the reason that the church would want to mimic the structures of heaven? If we are going, to, if we are destined as believers in Christ to live forever in a place called heaven, wouldn't it stand a reason we would want to have a structure that looks a little bit like heaven? Well, Brandon, we don't know what heaven looks like. No, but 
Do you know the main subject that Jesus taught on in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What was the main subject? Was it love? Was it salvation? Was it forgiveness? Was it mercy? Was it grace? What was it? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It is the place where God dwells and has sole headship over everything. He is the governing king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is here and now. How is the kingdom of God here and now? Through you and me who believe in Christ. And where we go as Christ's ambassadors of that kingdom, the kingdom goes with us. We are kingdom representatives, ambassadors to this world for the sake of Christ. So where we go, the hint of the kingdom should be evident. But the problem in the church is we don't know what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom looks a lot like Jesus. And what does Jesus look like? Well, if you've not read the Gospels, you don't know. You may have some faint idea, but you don't know. I'm not getting to my points today. Because some of you are waiting to fill in blanks. Let me do this real quick. All right. What was the focus of the kingdoms of the world contrasted with God's kingdom? That's the first question. And it's simply this. The focus shifts from the people making the decisions to God making the decisions. How does that work within the church? Because we have pastors, don't we? We hire pastors to come in to be our visionary leaders and they tell us what to do. Right? Well, who's the pastor's boss? The board. Well, who's the board's boss? I mean, where's the, where does the chain of command go to, right? But the problem is we don't think beyond a certain level of the chain of command. We only think pastoral level. Whoever the pastor of the church is, that's where the, that's where the authority stops. Uh, yeah, he's a God guy, so we assume that he spends his days reading the Bible from front to back and back to front every day. And then the one day he works on Sunday, he tells us about it. Right? And then he occasionally goes to board meetings and some public events, and he's supposed to call us or visit us, but if he doesn't do that, then shame, shame on him. We're really angry. He doesn't care about me. Uh, that's the problem, right? When the pastor becomes the sole authority for the church, what happens when the pastor falls from grace? Or when the pastor, what? The church fails. What happens if the pastor is the main one who the focus is on and they leave or they die? What happens? Oh, no. We've got to gather a search committee again. Right? Nobody wants to sit on that team because if you choose the wrong person, everybody's going to be looking at you like, really? Is this who you chose? They did that my first two years here. People were like, really? This thing you chose? And most of those people left. It's true. But that's the problem when the pastor is the sole source of authority. And you have a lot of pastors that are willing to say, give me the authority. It's about me. I get really leery when I see somebody's ministry in their own name. The ministry is of so-and-so. The ministry is of so-and-so. It's a brand. I've got it copyrighted. I mean, come on. And I'm not trying to judge those people, but let's be honest. 
the world has seen a lot of that, and that is the world infiltrating the ministries of God, the church. But it's my understanding that the ministries of God and the church are countercultural. They always have been. That's why the church has been under persecution. At great times in its own history, many people were being martyred for their faith, dying for their faith. Because they didn't do what the world said to do. And they didn't look like what the world said you should look like. They didn't smell or act like the world said you should smell or act. The problem is today, the church in the American culture is scarcely different from the world around it. Not that you have to go outside these walls and be obnoxious, because there are obnoxious Christians, we call them Bible thumpers or whatever, and they bat people out like a home run with scripture when they need to be gentle and kind and loving, and yes, addressing issues with the truth of the word, but speaking the truth in love. I've seen way too many people burn out and knocked out by people who thought they were doing the right thing, but have just hammered people into the ground. That is not the church. See, Jesus is the head of his church, and as such, he must be followed and obeyed rather than the other way around. We oftentimes say these little prayers, especially in church. Lord, we're going to start this new program. Come and bless this program. God, we're going to do this. Come and do this. Come and, come and bless this. And God's like, I'm not doing that. I mean, yeah, that's all good. You're not doing anything wrong. But I, I never asked you to do that. So quite honestly, I'm not going to bless it. I want you to come and join me where I am. And I'll bless you in that process but I'm doing a thing over here, not over there. And so how does the church then decide how to follow the lead of God? It needs to learn to hear the voice of God. How does the church learn to hear the voice of God? In its prayers, it needs to be listening as much as speaking. We've gotten this idea that prayer is all about me talking, God listening, and then I hang up the phone. What kind of conversation would that be like if you called somebody up on the phone and you're just rattling, okay, well, it's good to talk to you. Bye. Click. Does that ever happen? Are you that person? Or do you have that person in your life where you're like, and you're like but I, but can, okay, okay, click. Is that what you get out? But that's how we treat God. And in order to hear the voice of God, we've got to tune our ear to how God speaks. And he doesn't always speak audibly. We have evidence throughout Scripture that God has a very still, small voice. Oftentimes, he comes in that whisper on the wind. But our, vo our, our voices and our lives are way too loud to hear his voice. And then we start crying out, God, why is everything happening to me? Why are bad things? And he's like, I've been trying to tell you to just come over here. If there's, there's an exit over here, if you just. Now you can't hear me, right? So if I'm talking like this, you kind of have to tune in, right? What, what is Brandon saying? I can't. 
But if, I, if I'm doing my own thing and I'm going here and I've got my schedules packed and I'm running here and there, I, God, I'm sorry, I didn't get a chance. Lord, lay, now lay me down to sleep. Lord, I'm still keeping if I die before I wake up. Lord, I'm still okay. Woo, got my prayer in for the day. Boom. I'm all good. And instead, God said, no, 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 no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me tell you, I could just, let me help you. Oh, forget it. I want you to hear me. But you can't hear me when you're too busy. Now, I want you to hear me that you've got to lay that device down. I want you to hear me, but you've got to make time for me. I want you to hear me, but you need to shut up and listen. The only way to hear God is to shut up and listen. And when the thoughts of this world begin to crowd into that quiet moment, you take those thoughts captive. And you surrender them. And when they start to come back in again, you take those thoughts captive and you surrender them until you get to the point where it is a normal flow of who you are that when you come before God, yes, you may speak to him, but as much as you speak, you need to give the same amount of time in listening. And then whenever you think, oh, I need to get this meal on for tonight's dinner, or I need to finish writing that check, or I've got to pay that bill, or I've got to get the kids to wherever. You take those thoughts captive and you say, God, my time with you is important. Help me set those things aside so I can listen. In the times where I've truly dedicated myself to sit and listen as much as talk to God, it's amazing how he brings scripture to mind and he speaks scripture into my heart. Or it's amazing at times how he'll bring something um, so amazing to me that I had forgotten about in my own past that he'll want me to deal with. Hey, do you remember when you were this age and this thing happened and you're holding on to that hatred and bitterness? It's time. It's time to let that go. But I'll walk through that deep, dark valley with you. I'll be right there with you. We'll get rid of this together. See, it's in quiet times like that when my ear is tuned to hear the whispers of God that sometimes he speaks the loudest. What is the second thing? Real quick. How has the American church adopted the models of the world in place of God's model? Here's, here, here's in a nutshell, an answer to that question. In our attempts to be relevant to the world as the church, the church has adopted the structures of the world. We think, well, if, if, we, if we put this model in place, or if we look like this, or we have the certain lighting system, or the certain type of music, or the certain type of theater surrounds, or whatever, we think, then we'll attract the men, and then we'll get them with the message. Is Jesus not enough? Do we have to make Jesus look good? See, I think a lot of times we make Jesus look really bad. And instead of trying to allow the Holy Spirit to move, we try to manufacture a move of the Holy Spirit. We get people in through the doors with the lights, the sounds, or the cute-looking guy, pastor, or lady pastor, and our, some, some of you. But we, we pull them in, and we're like, okay, you gotta, he's going to be great until he's not. I've had people come, oh, you're going to be preaching today, right? Oh, yeah. And then I totally hit one two feet instead of out of the park. But it's not about me, right? 
Oh, he didn't preach what I thought he was going to preach. He was really bad. He must have not got a good night's sleep last night. We've adopted these models to try to attract people in. But in order to keep them here, we've softened the message. Ooh, we can't be too. We won't touch certain topics with a 10-foot pole, will we? Why? Because if I offend somebody, they'll leave. And we need to, we need to keep them tithing because we've got bills to pay. And we need to keep uh, people in the pews because it looks good. We've got to grow in church. You know what's interesting about Jesus is Jesus hit those subjects square between the eyes and many people walked away. See, Jesus' church growth program was, uh, hey guys, unless you're willing to eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. See you later. John chapter 6, look it up. It's pretty amazing. And it said it was too much for the people to handle. They couldn't understand it. It sounded really weird, whatever you want to, you know. And they just went home. Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I'm out. (laughs) Right? What church growth model is that? I grew up going to college and seminary and reading these great authors that had grown these mega churches. And you've got to have these things in place and it's got to look exactly like this and then you could grow a church just like mine. And guess what? It doesn't work. You know what does work? The gospel. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. It needs no introduction. Number three, and I'll close with this. What is the solution to the problems within the American church? What is the solution? Yes, somebody was listening. Somebody said Christ. Very good. The best structure or system to govern the church is God's rule. This structure is found in Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a great place to start in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 through 7. We call this the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' magnum opus. Other than the resurrection, you know, that was, that was his magnum opus. But this was his teaching. He says, starts out with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. And then he goes through all the blesseds. And then he goes into some really hard-hitting subjects. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. So he's taken the law of God in the Ten Commandments, and he's ramped it up. He's not softened it. What has he done? It's not only the physical act of adultery, it's committing it in your thoughts. You've heard it say you shouldn't commit murder, but I say if you hate a brother, you stand in judgment. Wow. So it's not just the physical act of murder that's wrong, it's me murdering them in my mind first? Now, when we really unpack 
the Sermon on the Mount and we look at what God's kingdom looks like as juxtaposed against the kingdoms of this world. We know the kingdoms of this world have laws in place that keep us from harming each other, but God's kingdom doesn't need a law force because he is the law. There will be no military and kingdom, just citizens, the kingdom of heaven that is. Just citizens of the kingdom. We won't need to be protected from each other because love will be the governing force. How will I know that? How do I know that? John tells us in his letter in 1 John in the New Testament, he says to us twice that God is love. And if God is the head and the source of all life and the great king and ruler of heaven and earth, then what do you think he governs by and what do you think we will live by in great perfection in that place? Love. The American church needs to learn to follow God's lead again. We need to begin to ask him what he wants rather than asking him to bless what we're doing. We call this a theocracy, this side of heaven, where God rules. And theocracy sounds really bad because it's been attributed to Islam and Allah, right? Because they do. They have the, 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 the Shia law, or excuse me, the um, Sharia law, and uh, it's ruled by their governance of God's word through the Quran. Now, we don't want to look too much like that. I mean, God's our king and our Lord, but we need something more. No, we just, we need him. Is there any, how do I get to heaven? Is there any other way? Or what, what hoops do I have to jump through to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? How do I receive salvation? Through Jesus. Now, it sounds so easy that, no, no, there's got to be something more than that. Well, Paul says, okay, here's how you're saved. If you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and that he was the son of God and you confess it with your mouth, you're saved. There's one amen out there. Well, good. A couple of you are now getting it. Okay, good. Uh, so is there anything more? Believe and confess. Believe and confess. Believe in your heart. You can fool everybody else, but God knows your heart. And if you haven't fully surrendered to him through his son, Jesus Christ, you're not a believer. You know, we talk about rhinos, Republicans in name only, or dinos, Democrats in name only. We have a lot of chinos. Christians in name only, just right off the top of my head, sorry. Christians in name only, right? Or Cenos if we take the H out. Christians in name only. I've seen a lot of them in my lifetime. And I'll admit, I was one of them in the past. Because it looks good on the outside to, to put this mask on that I am better than I really am. But as a true believer in Christ... I'm not worried about people seeing my faults. I'm not bound to those faults. I've been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what's most important. And even through my failures, I'm constantly continuing to try to point to Christ. Because he's the only way I get up from my failures and keep moving in his direction. If it was all about me, I'd stay down. Let me close with this. 
Os Guinness, I started with a quote from him. Let me conclude with a quote from him. Same book, Renaissance. He says, all our modern savvy may be wonderful beyond words, but compared with the strategic leadership of the Spirit of God, it is puny to the point of absurdity. Only a fool could mistake the bauble for a crown, and only a simpleton could confuse the information and knowledge of the city of man, which is the world, for the real wisdom of the city of God, which is the kingdom of God. Even in the grand age of leadership seminars, management studies, and project management, and the countless bestsellers on the umpteenth secrets of business success, it is the Spirit of God who leads the advance of the kingdom of God. God's model for the church is the design for the model of heaven. We know it as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is ruled by God through the headship of the Son of God, through the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. All of the Trinity together leading in tandem with one another. Any other system or structure that is built upon within the church is sinking sand. So it's not about communism. It's not about socialism. It's not about capitalism. It's all about Jesus. We have a motto in our movement. Jesus is the subject. Not the predicate. Not the adverb or the adjective. He is the subject. And when he ceases to be the subject, the church goes off the rails. As our worship team comes forward today, let me ask you this question. What system or structure is the right system or structure for the church? God's kingdom. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's my prayer for you. That is God's prayer for us. And that should be our prayer as a church each and every day. Your kingdom come, your will be done <clears throat> on earth as it is in heaven. Let's even narrow that down. Your kingdom come, your will be done in your church as it is in heaven. At least it should start there. As you get ready to vote this year, I'm not going to tell you who to vote. Inevitably, every time I come to a presidential election in my 21 years of ministry, somebody says, who, you need to tell people who we should vote for. I'm not going to tell you that. You should be an informed voter. Whose, it was between Hillary and Trump last time. And I had been, who do, who, they're both horrible, Pastor. Who do we vote for? What principles do they stand on? What are they advocating? Not what do they say or how they say it, because if you're looking for the perfect person, you're never going to find it this side of heaven. But what are they advocating? What do they stand for? And is it biblical?
It's not going to be completely biblical, this side of heaven. But somebody's going to align more perfectly. As, per, let me put perfectly out of that. Somebody's going to align better with the Word of God and promoting gospel ideals, though they may not be overtly Christian, than somebody else. And here's the question you need to ask yourself is, why am I going to the pastor or anybody else to find out who I should vote for? Who should I be going to? Lord, help me. Only you know. And we know that you are in ultimate control and you oversee the rise and the fall of kings and kingdoms. And you have since the beginning of time. So Lord, help me to do the right thing in the ways that you've called me to, to be obedient to you. And you say, well, Brandon, that's just a cop-out. You should still tell us. I mean, there are churches out there that are really laying the law down. I'm sorry, I'm not other preachers. And if you want another preacher, go to another church. And I'm not trying to be crass or mean. The truth is, I'm not here to peddle goods of the world. I'm here to preach the gospel of Christ. And the gospel of Christ in your life should inform how you vote and what you do every day, not just once every four years. You know the reason we're in the mess we are? Can I, can I be blatantly honest with you? Because the church has abdicated its responsibility to be the church in society. So we are as much to blame. And you notice in throughout Scripture, judgment comes to God's people before it comes to the rest of the world. Church, God's given us a wake-up call. I used to sing a song, Back to the Blessed Old Bible. But the truth is, we need to get in the Word and be people of the Word, and we need to pray for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to be stewards of what He's entrusted us as ambassadors of the Most High God, as citizens of that kingdom in this world. He's called us to be light, and He's called us to be salt. And if we neglect that responsibility, shame on us. So church, let's stand. Let's sing. And these altars are open. If you've been convicted by this message today, not because I've said something that's hurt your feelings or have offended you, but the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart, somebody will pray with you. We, we have a non-social distancing altar to my right, your left. If you want somebody to pray with you and you come to this side, you're indicating somebody, please come pray with me. If you want to pray in a social distance fashion, you can come to my left or right. Nobody will bother you. And they'll give you enough space to pray. And if those fill up, the steps are open. But whatever the case is, you pray. But as much as you pray, what do you have to do? Listen. Don't make impulsive decisions. Listen and wait upon the Lord. I promise you, he'll renew your strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you. And as you give us time like these where we can still come into a place like this and, and divide your word, to look into your word, to really weigh your word against the world and to see that your word is truth. Remind us that the simple truths of your word are all rooted in love. Jesus, you reminded us that the greatest commandments are these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You reminded us that all of the Old Testament law and prophets 
All 39 books of the Old Testament hang on those two. And so does our New Testament. When we forget, remind us of those great truths and help us to live those out daily. As the church, the body of Christ. Because it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.